Well, my brothers and sisters, once again, praise the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are here on this uh, Lord's Day morning, the uh, Sunday before our national holiday of the Declaration of Independence. And what I want to do this morning is I want to remind you that God indeed speaks not only to persons, God speaks not only to his church, God speaks to nations as well. And in the history of this land, we have been blessed with the blessings of liberty. That little phrase is found in the preamble of our Constitution, that this nation, this people might have secured to them the blessings of liberty. And you may wonder, how can one secure the blessings of liberty? Well, I'm convinced that the Word of God gives us the key to that. And that key is found in the passage of Scripture that we will open up this morning. And that passage of Scripture is taken from Proverbs chapter 14, verse 34. A familiar passage of Scripture to you, I hope, and one that I hope to set before you this morning uh, to open it up in a number of ways. And Proverbs chapter 14, uh, verse 34 reads this way. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Very simple, is it not? Very easy passage of Scripture to memorize. A very easy passage of Scripture to direct one's life by. A very easy passage of Scripture to use as a pattern for prayer for this nation. And so what I want to do this morning is, again, set before you the the principles that are found in this passage. Before I do that, though, I want to remind you of a number of things. First and foremost, as I said in the opening, God not only deals with individual souls, individual persons, he deals primarily with his church, but he also deals with nations. Throughout the word of God, over and over again, we are reminded that God is the God of nations. If you were to take your Bible and read through the book of Isaiah, you would see from chapters 13 through about chapters 25, God is dealing with specific nations other than the people of Israel. He is indeed the Lord God of nations. We see it in a number of other places where in the Word of God, God gives, if I can put it this way, instructions. God gives patterns. God gives those means by which nations will be blessed or nations will suffer for their sin. And again, it's kind of comprehended for us in this little passage of Scripture here in Proverbs. Again, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. I would even say this concerning this idea that I want to set before you this morning. In this proverb, in this short proverb, is packed everything that this nation needs for the present hour and for her future. If we as a people and as a nation would apply this proverb in all of our dealings, we would forever be a blessed and happy people. We would indeed be that city set on a hill. So what I want to do this morning from this passage of Scripture is set before you the following proposition, the following truth, if I can put it that way. And it's essentially this. Although there are a number of ways in which we could summarize this passage of Scripture, I want to do it along the following ways. And it's as follows. The dignity or the depravity of a nation is determined and revealed in its national character. I want to say that again. The dignity or the depravity of a nation is revealed in its national character. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Now again, we need to understand that this is a a very important uh, uh, reality, a very important truth for our own day. And the reason why I say that is because we find that God, as I said throughout the Word of God, 
makes definite claims that he is sovereign in the affairs of nations. Not only in the affairs of men and women, but in the affairs of nations as well. We see in, in, uh, in, in uh, uh, the book of Acts, chapter 17, verse 26, the following, Paul says this, He hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. And he's speaking about nations. God determines the bounds and times of habitation. We also see in Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, a very interesting passage of Scripture by way of national sin. God in Genesis 15 is promising to Abraham a great land. God is promising to Abraham this land that is overflowing with milk and honey, this land that promises, land of blessing. But God says to Abraham, even though that promise was made in Abraham's day, it would not come to fruition until 400 years after the promise was made. And part of the reason why was because the inhabitants of the land had not yet filled up the cup of iniquity. Listen to Genesis chapter 15, verse 16. The iniquity of the Amorites, the Lord speaks of. And we see the following again, Genesis chapter 15, uh, verse 16. But in the fourth generation, they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. In other words, God was saying to Abraham, whatever promise is being made to you today, there is a sense in which the Amorites had every right to that land so long as they conducted themselves in a righteous manner. But when the iniquity of the Amorites would become full, then the land would cast them out. God would cast them out of the land. It's oftentimes overlooked that Israel was under the same type of responsibility before God. There was Israel, this great covenant people. There was Israel with great blessings attached to it. There was Israel given uh, uh, bless, uh, excuse me, commands by way of how they would be blessed or how they would be cursed. And when Israel fell into national sin, God, by way of judgment, removed Israel from the land. You see, God judges nations. It's something of a proverbial statement that goes along these lines. God judges persons in eternity. He judges nations in time. And if that's the case, we as good and hopefully godly citizens of this nation must ask ourselves, what does Almighty God think of this nation of ours? Are we a nation whereby it can be said that righteousness exalts a nation? Or are we a nation that has been reproached by way of our sin? And so what I want to do is I want to take a look at some of these ideas and set before you and show you again, as I have here in my notes, ours is a day when not only biblical norms are being overturned, but many of the truths of national and social righteousness known through general revelation, common sense and common decency are being destroyed or discarded. We see the family unit is under attack. We see the role and the responsibility of parents is under attack. We have the twin evils of abortion on the one hand and euthanasia on the other end of the spectrum. We have rampant greed not only by way of corporations, but even in individuals and individual businesses. We have people who are intentionally trying to tear down any vestige of Christian heritage. This is our land, brothers and sisters. These are the things that are happening, can I put it this way, on our watch. Are we a complacent people in the middle of this or are we a praying people in the middle of this? And so on this day before, on this Lord's Day before the 4th of July, uh, it is my hope and my prayer that I can stir within you a godly element of patriotism to go before God in prayer on behalf of this nation. Why? Because righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. 
What's interesting is when we take a look and we think this thing through, righteousness exalting a nation, sin a reproach to any people, what we see is that the, the scripture is setting before us these great moral concepts of good and evil, not on a personal level, but on a national or corporate level. A national or corporate level. So that not only does God see individuals as they stand, he also sees individuals as they congregate in groups. And there's a sense in which we know this and we understand this. We know that by way of our national identity, there are certain things that we are known by. We have our, we have our national anthem. And in that national anthem, there are th- ideas that are stressed. Bravery, liberty, freedom. I purposely selected uh, Leviticus chapter 25, verse 10 for our opening reading. That little segment in that passage of Scripture, proclaim liberty throughout the land. Many of you know that's the inscription on the Liberty Bell. Again, the idea of our Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel coming, preaching liberty, setting the captives free. You see, liberty, which we understand as a personal and political idea, is first a theological blessing from God. And there can be no personal political liberty to individuals who are bound in their sin. That, if I can put it this way, is the key, the genius of the gospel in its public setting. And this is the light and the salt that you bring to the, to the environment that you find yourself in. Yes, you thank God for personal liberties and political freedoms, but you understand that there is a cause that lies at the root that must transform the heart. And so again, these are the reasons why we bring this out. But the idea of national righteousness or national sin, it reminds us that, that, that a nation can have a particular character. And what I want to do, even before we get into the exposition of the text itself, is I want to set before you something of this concept of national character. And again, as I said before, we have our, our national character, again, uh, kind of uh, summed up in its ideas in, the, uh, in, the, in, the, uh, in our national anthem. We have our motto, uh, in, God do we try, in, God, in God We Trust, which interestingly enough is taken from the fourth stanza of our national anthem. But what I want you to see is that there is a reality of what I would call a national character. And a national character can be defined along these lines. It is the complex of mental and ethical traits marking and often, excuse me, marking and often distinguishing a group or a nation. We talk again, as I said, about the character of the American people. Character is what a nation or person becomes as a result of his moral and spiritual choices. That's vital. You see, you develop character. Character is developed or formed in you, and the formation of character takes place through the choices that you and I make. The choices that you make on a personal level, the choices that we make on a political scale, again, that forms national character. Our choices determine what type of person we become. This is why spiritual instruction is so important in life. Those of us that are older... Think of what we could have been or what we could have become, I'm sorry, by the, if, the, if by the grace of God we did not choose the proper actions based upon the scripture. To those of you that are younger, fail not to understand the importance of your moral choices and moral character. Should you persist in goodness and godliness, your character will be shaped in a wonderful way. You will save yourself from many hardships in this life and you will enjoy blessedness in the life to come. And it's the same for all of us. Those of us who are older who maybe have to have a change in character, it's a little more difficult at this end of the game, so to speak, but it can still be done. The grace of God is still there. 
The grace of God is still active. And should you and I take up seriously what the word of God calls us to, we can indeed be that people who are blessed of the Lord. In addition, both of us who are younger and older, we must understand that our personal choices ultimately begin to shape the character of our nation. I want to say that again. Your personal choices, my personal choices, eventually over time shape the moral character of our nation. And let me go on to say this. Private actions seem to have very public consequences, do they not? Most of us remember a day when the great cry of society was the privacy of our own bedrooms. It's an amazing thing how that was once clamored for being done in the privacy of somebody's bedroom is now paraded on the streets. That, my friends, is national character. That reveals the nation's true character. So again, this passage of Scripture. Recognition of a national character in Scripture and in life. The nation, that nations as well as individuals have and develop character is clear. Every nation has a national anthem and a national motto, which puts in the songs, song those characteristics that it is known for and for which it constantly strives. As I said before, a national anthem is known for its emphasis on bravery, freedom, and liberty. It is from Scripture that we see in the clearest way the idea of national character. Oftentimes, the character of a nation is negative and becomes the basis for God's judgment on it. Some of you might remember, or hopefully all of you know that passage of Scripture in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 6. God says to the prophet the following, For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans. Now listen how God describes them. That bitter and hasty nation which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. God is able to define the Chaldeans by, in one little sentence. What sentence does God define us by? We see this as well in Titus chapter 1, verse 12. Paul writes this concerning the Cretans. One of themselves, even a prophet of, a prophet of their own, said the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and slow bellies. Again, a national character was discernible. Read Daniel in the book of Daniel. And what do you see? You see Daniel describing nations by way of pictures of animals. In other words, there were those qualities in the nations that corresponded to the animals by which Daniel described them. So there is such a thing, as I said before, as national character. National character reflects and is reflected in the culture of a people. And what is culture? Culture is the pattern of behavior and thinking that people living in social groups learn, create, and share. Culture distinguishes one human group from another. A Persons or a people's culture includes their beliefs, rules of behavior, language, rituals, art, technology, styles of dress, ways of producing, uh, ways of producing uh, food, religion, and political and economic systems. These are the things that make up culture. And I want you to see and I want you to understand that culture, as I said before, has this distinguishing characteristic. Either a culture is righteous and right in the sight of God. Our culture does evil in the sight of God. And the question that we must ask ourselves, and I have to say it this way, is not from the comfort of academic evaluation. The, com the question that we must ask ourselves, if I can again say it this way, in the crucible of examination of our own hearts before God, what is the spiritual state of the culture that we live in? 
What is the spiritual state of our nation? And what can we do to bring about those things that will open the door for the blessings of God? Why do I say this? Because it is a principle established in the word of God that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. So what I want to do is I'm going to take a look at this passage of scripture under that very simple outline. Righteousness exalting a nation and sin being a reproach to any people. Well, the first thing I want you to see then is this idea of national righteousness. Now, we've already talked about uh, national character. We've already talked about the, uh, the idea of, uh, of culture. What is national righteousness? Now, what's interesting is that when we come to this passage of Scripture, one of the things that we need to be aware of is that this passage of Scripture is primarily, if I can put it this way, a, a corporate passage. It's a, it's a social passage. It's a passage that's not, is not, is not so much dealing with the individual as a particular unit in society, but is dealing with the society as a whole. And this is what we see. We see, again, this emphasis given on social righteousness within a community of people. And the idea of righteousness in this regard is very important to the scriptures. If I had to venture a guess, I would say that most of us, when we hear the word righteousness, think of it in personal categories. And I think that you would be right in doing that for the most part. I think that when it comes to the concept of righteousness, we understand that in a very generic and a very general way that righteousness is always defined as that conformity to a standard of right. Now, in the scriptures, righteousness is always in conformity to the nature of God. There's, righteousness is not outside of God, and then we are evaluating God by whether or not he has met the standard of our concept of righteousness, but rather God is the very definition and the framework of righteousness. And all righteous behavior is that behavior which corresponds to the nature of God and to what he's revealed about himself. And so in that way, we see that righteousness is, again, that, that, that behavior that corresponds to the command and to the nature of God. But when we speak of righteousness in its social setting, one of the things that we begin to see is that, especially in the word of God, and we shouldn't overlook this, particularly as it comes to us in the prophets, that righteousness very often doesn't so much have as its first understanding in particular passages a vertical relationship that you and I stand before God, but oftentimes righteousness corresponds to the horizontal relationship that we sustain to one another. Whether it's on a personal level, whether it's on an institutional level, so there is a sense in which you and I are being righteous to one another by the way we conduct ourselves toward one another. There's a sense in which a government, an institution, can act unjustly if at a horizontal plane it is not doing that which God determines to be right. And this is why you have so many places in the Word of God, and I hate to say this, and and maybe this may, I don't know the congregation, I don't know you that well yet, but... It's been my uh, it, it, it's been my experience in within the evangelical churches because and I think rightly so we focus the idea of righteousness at the level of our personal relationship with God vital 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 sometimes we lose sight of the fact that God considers our righteousness that we have one before another and I can treat you unrighteously I can sin before God by sinning against you. 
And there is over and over again in the scripture, particularly in the prophets, a great denunciation, particularly of individuals and places of power or institutions that conduct themselves in a way to take advantage of the weak, to take advantage of the disenfranchised, to take advantage of the poor. Now let me say this. You don't know how contrary to my grain it is to speak along these lines. Strange as that might sound. And the reason why it's somewhat contrary to my grain to speak along these lines is because, I almost hate to say this, but politically I'm a very conservative person. My political instincts are always on the conservative side. But political conservatism has its social sins. And I would not be doing justice as a preacher of the word of God if I, if I, if I uh, did not tell you these elements that, of what God considers sin on a, on a horizontal level just because it didn't fit with my political philosophy. And there is a sense in which over and over again, and I think as evangelicals, we lose sight of how often God speaks about sin at a horizontal level. And when, and, and when uh, Solomon is saying in this passage of scripture, righteousness exalts a nation, his primary focus is on righteousness at the horizontal level. Now again, ultimately all righteousness has the vertical aspect to it. But in this passage of scripture, that's where the point of emphasis lies. It is an offense to a holy God to do wrong to your fellow man. It is, an, it is an offense to a holy God to so construct things or to so manipulate things where it all works out that the other person is on the short end of the stick as long as you're in the middle of it and you're, you make sure you're getting the best of it. That is a moral evil in the sight of God. And we need to hear it from our pulpits. Listen, I think so much of, of what happens in, in, uh, in theological liberalism in our day is that that's what's emphasized to the exclusion of personal responsibility and accountability before God. It's almost as if the theological liberal, liberal, and by extension the political liberal, again, doesn't understand to the full extent what the reality of the soul before God is. They're seeing everything in these larger concepts, and they have a point of truth there. But you see, we have to make sure that when we talk about getting right with God through faith in Jesus Christ, and can I talk about that for a minute, getting right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. You see, in all this talk about a national sermon, it never exempts the person from that awesome reality of standing before God and giving an account one day. What will that day be like for you? Will you be there again thinking, well, I've done this and I've done that? Like I've often said, like I've, like I've often liked to say, sometimes we think we're going to stand before God with a plan B in our pocket so that if my evangelical faith don't work out, I'll pull out my good works. And I think you've heard me say this before. Our good works will get us to hell faster than they'll get us to heaven. So again, there is this whole dynamic about the individual and how we stand before God. And God offers to us, again, the great blessing of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. This is the wonderful thing. And yet at the same time, if we become so myopic, so focused on just my relationship with Jesus and forget about the extension of that grace on a horizontal level, I'm not living out everything that God has called me to live out. And if I do that long enough on a personal level, and I think this is one of the great... This is one of the great scandals of evangelicalism, if I can say this, that that righteousness which we have embraced by faith, that gift of righteousness, has not filtered down into who and what we are as individual people where it begins to show itself on a horizontal level. 
You ought to be a blessing in your neighborhood. Why? Because you have the righteousness of Christ granted to you through faith. You ought to be a blessing in your workplace. Why? Because you have the Spirit of God residing in you and the fruit of the Spirit hopefully being developed within your life. You ought to be a blessing in the church of God. Why? Because the gifts of the Spirit are yours and they're, be exercised, they're, they're to be exercised in the church. And so you see all this idea by way of what we see, the, how we're going to consider this, this righteousness. Is it all going to be about me and the Lord Jesus Christ? If it doesn't start there, you and I are both in trouble. But if it doesn't extend out horizontally, we're, if it doesn't extend out horizontally, we're missing the emphasis of this passage of Scripture. I'm saying to you, Exegete this passage of scripture and you will see that this passage of scripture is calling us to that righteousness that takes place on a, on a horizontal level between human persons and institutions and individual persons. And so again, again, as I said before, this goes so much against my, my political leanings, but there is a reality of institutional sins. There is a reality whereby people, by way, of their, by way of greed, and not just people, it extends to corporation by way of greed, are sinning before a holy God, and God is taking note, and God is also saying this, that the establishment of that and the carrying on of that forms a national character. And if the national character is such to where it does not or is not righteous in the sight of God, but if... It incorporates all those sinful tendencies. That nation will not be blessed. That nation will be a reproach. And we have to get to that, yet we still haven't explained fully this whole idea of national righteousness. But what I want you to see again, the national, uh, the, the national righteousness, again, has this idea of the character and the quality of the people. Now again, righteousness, ultimately every standard of righteousness must conform to God's nature and the standards that he has made known to us through revelation both general and special. What do I mean by that? God reveals himself. This is one of the great, again, blessings that God has given the humanity, that he's made himself known. God makes himself known in the heavens. God makes himself known, again, in, uh, in, in the conscience. God makes himself known in the canon of scripture. God makes himself supremely known in the person of Jesus Christ. How thankful we are for this. And when God makes himself known, again, essentially what he is doing, he is showing us how we ought to conduct ourselves. And so any standard of righteousness or any form of righteousness must ultimately conform to God's revelation of himself. But when we see this passage of scripture, as I said before, we're talking about social righteousness. Now, righteousness, as we find it in this passage, is dealing not only with those ideas of personal behavior that we associate with righteousness. It involves this, but it also has included with it man's social dealing with his fellow man. In fact, contextually, the proverb is a classic statement on what we usually think of when we speak of social righteousness. Righteousness here refers to moral integrity, that is, uprightness, goodness, practicing justice. Notice how righteousness is a social as well as personal category. Early uses of this word righteousness in the scripture occur in the relation of the function of judges. All of their decisions are to be according to truth without partiality. Leviticus 19 verse 15. Ye shall do no unrighteousness in judgment. Did you catch that? It's not that you shall not be unrighteous. You shall do no unrighteousness. You can do righteousness. And you can do unrighteousness. You shall do no unrighteousness in judgment. Thou shalt not respect the person of the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. But in righteousness thou shalt judge thy neighbor. I find it very interesting that... that that here in Leviticus we have the command, thou shalt not honor the person of the poor. 
In other words, the poor are not to get the wink of justice, so to speak. And certainly the powerful are not to get the benefit of justice going in its favor. Justice, as we see in the statue, is to be blind. Justice is to be that which is right and equitable before God. In our relationships before Him, in our relationships with, with, with one another. Again, the basic sense of conformity to right dictates the, word, the meaning of the word, <coughs> excuse me, whether it is used in its personal or social settings. The word describes three aspects of personal relationships that are worth noting. Number one, righteousness regards, has regard to our interpersonal relationships. Number two, righteousness has regard to governmental relationships, the state and the citizen. Number three, righteousness has regard to divine and human relationships. And of course, of course, it is only this last that brings man into the saving relationship with God based on God's gift of righteousness through Jesus Christ. Now, in the social setting, the man who is righteous tries to preserve the peace and prosperity of the community by fulfilling the demands of God in regard to others. Specifically, like Job, he delivers the poor and orphan and helps the blind along the way. He supports the weak and is a father or a provider to the poor. When men follow God, righteousness is said to dwell in the city. You see, there's that whole idea of righteousness exalting a nation. To rule on the behalf of the wicked for a price is perversion is a perversion of righteousness. For it takes away the righteousness or the decency of, the, of, of a righteous society. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 21, God has this, this, um, this against the people. How the faithful city has become a harlot. It was full of judgment. Righteousness lodged in it, but now murderers. Righteousness was no longer to be found. And so again, God's claim against the people. Jeremiah declares that justice and righteousness together means to deliver the weak, to do no violence to them, nor to shed innocent blood. This righteousness will preserve the city. Listen to what, what God says through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 22, verses 13 through 17. And notice how many of these sins are what we would call social sins that we see in our own day. Jeremiah chapter 22, verses 13 through 17. Woe unto him that buildeth his house by unrighteousness and his chambers by wrong, that uses his neighbor's service without wages and giveth him not for his work, that saith, I will build me a wide house and large chambers and cutteth him out windows and it is sealed with cedar and paneled with vermilion. Shalt thou reign because thou closest thyself in cedar? Did not thy father eat and drink and do judgment and justice and then it was well with him? He judged the cause of the poor and the needy. Then it was well with him. Was not this to know me, saith the Lord? But thine eyes and thy heart are not but for thy covetousness and for to shed innocent blood for oppression and violence to do it. You hear what's happening here? God is taking issue really with one of the final kings of the, of the kingdom of Judah. And what he's essentially saying is this, your father probably referring certainly at least to David, maybe to some of the good kings of the, of the, uh, of the kingdom of Judah. Uh, but what he is referring to here is, is, is this final king, and I think it's uh, uh, Zedekiah, I believe, had taken his power all for his own personal advantage and gain. And God did not leave that unnoticed. When God declared judgment was coming upon the kingdom, that was part of it. 
Yes, there were all the moral elements of sin that had kind of degenerated the people as a, as a general population, but there were these sins in high places that God would not leave unnoticed. And so we see it here in Jeremiah chapter 22. Of course, we all know, or we should all know, the, the well-known passage in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. These are horizontal elements here. This is what God calls the evangelical church of our day, too. This isn't, you see, this isn't a passage that the theological liberal can take to himself and say, you see, I got this down pat, and then take this passage of Scripture, excuse me for one minute, and then take this passage of Scripture and throw it against us. No, we are to conduct ourselves in such a way to where all the Word of God finds a residence within our souls. We're to say, listen, we among all men and women, by the grace of God, will carry out those commands that God has for us, whether they be personal or whether they be public. Excuse me. <clears throat> Again, other passages as well. So this is the idea. And what do we see here? Righteousness. So you understand, you have an understanding of what this righteousness is. It is that conformity to right as God calls us to exercise it on a horizontal level. And I have to ask the question again, what does your righteousness look like this morning? <clears throat> Has your neighborhood been a better neighborhood because you're part of it? Has your workplace been a better workplace because you're part of it? Is your home everything that it should be because you are part of it and you are conducting yourself, I am conducting myself hopefully, in a way that God can look and say, righteousness exalts a nation. And here we see the benefit of this righteousness. It exalts a nation. It's a wonderful word. It means to, to be lifted on high. And no less a commentator or a theologian than Jonathan Edwards says about this passage of Scripture that listen to what he says about this passage of Scripture. We are not here merely to understand that it renders a nation or a people indeed more excellent. And there's a sense in which that's kind of like the meaning of the word. The idea of this being exalted as a nation has this idea of a, of a formation of character that reflects the, the reality of the character of the people. And it is exalting. It does lift the individual up. But he goes on to say this. And just so cause why they should be more honored, but it exalts them in prosperity. And for Jonathan Edwards, he was looking at this passage of scripture and saying, if you want to know the prosperity of nations, it is bound up in their moral character. That by way of Jonathan Edwards' understanding of what life is all about, a, an evil empire could not be a blessed empire. An evil nation could not be a blessed nation. And what we see here, again, in this idea of God giving prosperity, think back what I said earlier about the preamble to the Constitution, that this people might secure to themselves the blessings of liberty. You see, when our national character is so corrupt, we will never know the blessings of liberty. We will know the, we will know the tyranny of being in bondage to our own sins and being in bondage to the, to the whims of others. But the blessings of liberty are the blessings from heaven above. And the, blessed way, and the best way to secure those blessings are when a nation is righteous in the sight of the God. You see, then that nation is an exalted nation. Now Israel was to be the example of this. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 1 through 2. 
And it shall come to pass that thou shalt hearken diligently to the voice of the Lord thy God and observe to do all his commandments, which I command thee this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all the nations of the earth. Deuteronomy chapter 26 says exactly the same thing. But the idea that we see here is that righteousness exalts a nation. And we can make applications of this, as I said before, in both public ways and personal ways. In a public way, we can say this, that the church is to be an example of what we might call corporate righteousness. Does the world, again, and, and, and let's, if, if I can say it this way, let's, let's understand that in one sense the world is going to be the world. We, we understand that. But hopefully that we're not giving the world any ammunition to use against us. But can the world look into the church of Jesus Christ and say, in that place, among all places in society, is a place where this horizontal righteousness is being manifested. Is that happening in our churches? I hope and pray that it is. Because if a nation is blessed that is righteous, how much more church that has this type of righteousness given to it? Or this type of righteousness that's part and parcel of its makeup? Our personal righteousness adds to national righteousness. Now this is a very important point. Since the righteousness of a nation is nothing else than the reflection of the righteousness of individuals of that nation, you must realize how vital your righteous and godly conduct is to the well-being of our nation. Your righteous and godly living is needed in this present day. The world needs to see somewhere godly and righteous living. If they don't see it in the church, where else are they going to see it? If they don't see it in our individual lives, where else are they going to see it? One last point, and we're not done with the sermon. We're only about halfway through here, but I did want to apply this section of the, of, of the sermon. One last point, and this is important. We've been talking about righteousness throughout this whole sermon. You need to understand that the righteousness that we're talking about is not the righteousness that saves. It's the righteousness that is the effect of salvation. The only righteousness that saves is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, freely offered by God the Father, and personally received through faith in Jesus Christ. It is that wonderful theological reality known as imputed righteousness. The gift of righteousness that God freely gives. And as I said before, that gift that is freely given and that gift that is received by faith alone, you know that it has taken root in your heart when it exhibits itself in righteous living. And your individual conduct in public will help to elevate the national character. I'm not saying this to shine you up, but you have to understand how important you are to the character of this nation. You have to understand that when you conduct yourself according to the word of God, you are being that preserving salt and that life-giving light to a corrupt world. My brothers and sisters, why would we choose to be anything else? So here you see righteousness exalts a nation. But there's a contrast that we see here. And again, as I said before, the, 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 uh, the outline of this passage of Scripture is very simple. Uh, we see that not only does righteousness exalt a nation, but we see, and not only is there what we would call a national righteousness, we also see that there is such a thing as national sin. National sins. I really think it's interesting that in the day and age in which we live, politically, if, I, if you'll allow me, and I certainly don't mean to quote-unquote get political, but I think our current uh, political setting serves as a, as, as a wonderful illustration or help to this passage of Scripture. We, we can kind of congregate into our political camps and 
as it always goes. The right can say to the left what their sins are, and the left can say to the right what their sins are, and we begin to almost destroy one another. There's a sense in which, if I can put it this way, if you'll allow me to speak along these lines, that the body politic is kind of like a two-headed cannibal. The left head is destroying the right, and the right head is destroying the left. It's consuming itself. And all I'm trying to say in that is this. If the left can see my sins, and the right can see the left's sins, that means there's plenty of sin going around that needs (laughs) repented of. Isn't that right? And what it tells us is this. We are giving expression to what this passage of Scripture says. That sin is a reproach. That sin brings shame. That sin destroys. That sin never gives as much as it promises and always takes more than what it promised to give. Young people, you need to hear that. Old people, we need to hear that. Sin makes great promises, doesn't it? It can't fulfill one of them. And in what little way it does fulfill, boy, does it take a lot. At the end of the day, you end up morally bankrupt. And that's what sin will do. That's why sin is a reproach. And as I said before, as there's national righteousness, there's national sins as well. And again, the concept of national sin and national righteousness are somewhat parallel. The idea of national sin kind of reflects that idea. What is the moral makeup of the people? If, a na- if national righteousness are those, are those things that we kind of emulate and those things that we try to set forth and those ideas and those principles that we try to make known, our national sins are in one sense the same thing. Those sins that we are no longer publicly shamed over. Those sins that we no longer have personal shame for. Those sins which are now the place of pride in society. These are national sins and God judges nations that sin. Yes, righteousness exalts a nation and thank God for it. But sin is a reproach and sin is a destroyer of nations. And you have to understand, my friends, as I look on your faces as I'm bringing all this out, I would not be faithful to you as a preacher and I would not be honest before God as a preacher if I did not bring these things out. National sins bring national judgments. National sins call for national repentance. Do you think the world knows anything about repentance? It doesn't. But the church of Jesus Christ hopefully does. And do you think that the world can look in the church of Jesus Christ and see a model of repentance? I hope and I pray that it can. Because that's what this world needs. That's what our culture needs. That's what our society needs. It needs a model of repentance. And may the church of Jesus Christ be that. An important point needs to be made here. You remember that righteousness in our passage has primary meaning to social righteousness, i.e. that righteousness exhibited one toward another of of the state toward the people and toward other nations. We now see that this concept of social righteousness is something that still has ultimate concerns with the notion of sin. Sin is a moral category, socially applied, informs us as to our understanding of social righteousness. As Edmund Burke once said, whatever is morally wrong cannot be politically right. Therefore, our emphasis is to set forth the necessity of national and social righteousness. We must remember that social righteousness must never and can never promote sin. And this is the, this is the strange age in which we live. We've come at a, at a, at a period in our, in, our, in, our, in, in our cultural history to where those things that God finds abominable, society is rejoicing in. 
Those things that God has not only promised to judge, but but given examples of judgment, society is openly flaunting. And we cannot think that God will somehow turn a blind eye to that which he has promised that he would always judge. And part of the pressure we might say in our day is this. Are we conforming to the world's standard of what is maybe that, you know, that wide blanket to what love is? Many would be hearing me today and their ears would be perking up and they'd say, okay, I'm listening. Don't cross that line because then you've gone into hate. But brothers and sisters, should you stand by and let a man, a woman, a child, a society march into hell with a bold face, you do not love that individual or that society. Love presents sinners with the saving, converting, and sanctifying grace of God. And what we see in all of this is, again, that God is calling us away from our sin, that God is dealing with, uh, dealing with us in such a way that he will not have to judge us. When we consider again this proverb, we will consider this proverb, uh, this part of the proverb as we did the first, by considering what sin is in this context and what reproach is. Now sin, as righteous as is conformity to God's standard of right, so transgression or sin is a failure to attain that standard. In the context of Proverbs 14.34, sin contrasts with righteousness and so has the, has the sense of injustice or of doing wrong or evil. It still carries with it all the force of our transgressing before God personally, but here it is applied in the social sense as righteousness. We have a biblical view both of social righteousness and social sin, and both ideas inform each other. Now it says here that sin is a reproach or shame. Here we come face to face with the effects of our national and personal character. And the idea, once again, is this, is that there is, in a sense, a sense in which people when they fail to experience shame for them, then the situation for that people as a culture is serious indeed. Again, we we read of the time in in Jeremiah's day when their sin was so common that there was no longer the ability to blush for their sin. And so again, we see this idea of sin bringing shame. In 1679, John Owen, the... uh, famous Puritan preacher, preached a sermon entitled National Sins and National Judgments. In that sermon, he noted that when a number of national sins begin to appear simultaneously in a nation, that nation is in danger of the judgment of God upon it. He says this, Is there not a confluence of all sorts of sins among us whereof mankind can contract guilt, and especially those sins upon the commission of which God pronounces nations ruined? Atheism and profaneness, blood and murder, adultery and uncleanness and pride. When these sins are dominant in a nation that makes profession of the knowledge of God, God himself says, and we may say that that nation is ruined. And those things, Owen says in 1679, have prevailed among us. In response to the sins of his day, Owen marked out three things necessary for a nation marked by such sin. Number one, he says this, that there be a visible reformation. I will not say conversion, Owen says, but a visible reformation, vigorously attempted in and upon the body of the people. 
Secondly, unless those who truly fear the Lord do mourn over the sins of the people continually, and unless they are fervent in their prayers for deliverance, it doth not stand with the honor of God and the glory of His righteousness, holiness, word, and the holiness of His word and truth to save this nation without these things. I remind you again of Genesis chapter 15, verse 16. The sins of the Amorites 400 years prior to their expulsion was not yet full. And what is the cup of our nation before God? Is the sin, are the sins of this nation a full cup before God? Have we sinned in such a way that judgment must necessarily fall? Well, let me say this. I am convinced that no sermon on the judgment of God should ever end without the presentation of the glorious grace of God and the gospel forgiveness in Jesus Christ. You read in the scripture and you will see some of the most wicked men who ever lived came to saving faith before they finally left this world. You read the case of wicked Manasseh, the worst king that the kingdom of Judah ever had. This man's sins are specifically cited as the reason why judgment came on the kingdom of Judah. But that man was converted. That man came to his right senses. And that man was saved. And the gospel that we have the privilege of preaching is a gospel that compassionately goes out to sinners everywhere. It is a gospel that is to be made known far and wide. It is the gospel that goes forth on its knees if need be with tears in their eyes imploring sinners to turn from their sin. Why will you die, God says to a sinning people. And it's the same that you and I say. So what a sermon to hear on the Sunday before the 4th of July. My brothers and sisters, what other kind of sermon could we hear on a Sunday before we celebrate a national holiday? Righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. And the gospel of Jesus Christ will save any sinner. Let's pray. Our Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we ask and we pray, Lord, that you would make us, Lord, the heralds of the gospel that you intend for us to be. Many of us, Father, oftentimes are somewhat sheepish about making the gospel known. Many times we're very concerned with how we will be perceived. But, Father, in this day and in the right moment, we pray, Father, your spirit would so grab a hold of us, Lord God, that we would not be ashamed of the gospel of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, because we know, Father, it is your power and the salvation. So, Father, make this little church, Nosset Baptist Church, make it a lighthouse, we pray, Father. May it be a source, a, a morsel of salt in a decaying culture. And I say this, Lord God, and I pray this, meaning no ill intention toward our neighbors. I'm sure many of our neighbors, Father, would be shocked at some of the sins that mark our society as well. And so, Father, we ask and we pray that you would make us bold proclaimers of your word, gracious presenters of the Lord Jesus Christ, and examples of both national righteousness and personal and national repentance to this nation. Grant this, we pray, Father, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.